The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to bring Kathy Cater. She is a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist to our listeners. She has a great new book called Healthy Bodies, Teaching Kids What They Need to Know, and prior to this book, she also authored Real Kids Come in All Sizes, 10 Essential Lessons to Build Your Child's Body Esteem. Welcome, Kathy. Oh, hello, Melinda. Glad to be with you. Well, this is such an important issue, especially around this, it seems to be a year-long event now, is focusing on our weight and dieting, and dietitians really try to navigate people away from diets and towards eating well. But I think it's particularly difficult for children in our society who are coming of age, trying to figure out who they are, so desperate for being included and so sensitive to what others think of them. So I love your book. It offers great tips for parents and teachers and kids. I want to know why you wrote it. Well, actually, you know, this edition that we're talking about today is a third edition, so I have to go back in time to when I wrote the first edition because it's all just kind of built on that. But at that time, my own daughter was in the fourth grade, so this was in 1996-97, and it has a very vivid (laughs) memory still in my mind of the day that she came home from school and said to me, her best friend at the time was named Callie, and she said, Mom, why is Callie thinking she's fat? Hmm. And I just went, oh, a very big internal groan. As someone who has specialized in my clinical work for, at that time it had been 16, 17 years, with working with individuals who had struggled with body image and eating and weight concerns and and full-blown eating disorders. And as somebody who, in my own adolescence, had come to not trust my own body and to feel dissatisfied with my size and shape, when my own friend Joanne at the time said she was fat, and after I heard her saying that enough, I began to look at myself and say, well, if Joanne thinks she's fat, and Joanne was one of the skinniest girls in the class, I thought, what must that mean about me, who at the time, of course, was just a very average size and shape. So when I heard my own daughter say those very words, I just trembled. So, you know, long story short, I approached the school district here and said, you know, this is the age when children are still inside their bodies looking out innocently, haven't yet been as affected by some of the messages that they're going to be bombarded by. This is the time in their lives when we should give them lessons to understand what it is that they can and cannot expect to control about their size and shape and some of the messages that they're going to get, they're going to suggest to them that, you know, that they should be able to 
to kind of quote the ads, get the body they always wanted or have the body. And if they just work hard enough at it, they can. And if they don't have that thin ideal, it must be because they're doing something wrong and on and on. And so the school district curriculum director agreed with me. She said, oh, that sounds just exactly right, but we've looked for those lessons and we haven't found them. They don't exist. And I said, oh, I'll find them for you. (laughs) Wow. Well, of course, they didn't exist. And so I began to talk to experts like Michael Levine, who's a primary prevention of eating disorders specialist, and and many other people, Diane Neumark-Steiner. And indeed, there had been no lessons like this developed. And I felt like I'd promised a product, and I wanted to deliver it. And that was how it all started. Mm Mm-hmm. So we piloted the lessons here in, in my own uh, daughter's school and several other community schools, and they did very well. And so the National Eating Disorder Association ended up picking it up and publishing it. And so that's it's all kind of history since then. So there's a couple of editions that uh, precede this current edition. But And I should let our listeners know that you're based in St. Paul, Minnesota. So you yes. worked with the school district there. Yes, I did to get started, yes. Now, have you tracked any of the kids since they've had these lessons to see if they are better situated within their own bodies today? Yeah, I wish I could answer yes to that. You know, I'm so not a researcher, and I am a clinician, and that research would be wonderful to have and know. What we have done is looked at followed up kids a year later. In fact, I have a video of children who are being interviewed and talking about what they learned in the Healthy Bodies curriculum a year after they had the lessons. And it's fairly remarkable, the things that they were able to say that they had taken away that um, let me know that the lessons had been, had an impact on their life at that time. But over the long term, no, I have to say, no, we don't. It would be wonderful. Well, in your preface for this book, I tagged several pages because they really spoke to me. And that is, on the one hand, we've got this horrible childhood obesity epidemic. Mm-hmm. And I've been a dietitian. We're probably about the same age, so I've been doing this for several decades. And I remember writing my master's thesis on the development of childhood obesity. Mm. So decades later... The situation has not improved, but I think we have probably hurt a lot of children by well-meaning adults, as you identify in this book, well-meaning adults who put children on diets. And in your preface, you even say that dieting children gain significantly more weight than non-dieters over time. So if you look at careful histories, too, of obese adults, they reveal many times this pattern of disordered eating that was really set up by putting kids on diets when they were younger and then having this unhealthy relationship with food. And you end this particular paragraph with this maxim, which I also adhere to, which is first, do no harm. Mm -hmm. So as we talk about dieting, as we Enter, you know, dieting seasons come twice a year, and they usually come in January, which is known as the diet month, and then again around swimsuit season. Everyone seems to be freaking out because we've had all this seasonal candy. Kind of sets us up for that. But to just remind our listeners of some very basic facts that 
dieting, I always say diet is a four-letter word, it backfires, it can lead to more harm than good, and much better to focus on eating well, you know, save a lot of money. But you also have something in your preface several pages back that was a very important reminder to adults of what's going on in children's minds. So you've got a quote from a 14-year-old girl, and she says, why should I eat healthy if it won't make me thin? Mm-hmm. And you have another quote from a 16-year-old. If I eat healthy, I feel like I'm on a diet, and all I want is some junk food. Mm-hmm. And so that really addresses two points. One is that we've got more of a focus on being thin than being healthy and fit. And the other is, where does that desire from junk food come from? Okay. Well, I mean, I think that those are kind of two questions that if I could take them one at a time. Yes. You know, without a doubt, just to echo kind of what you said, uh, sadly, you know, children, not this isn't the sad part, this is the good part, children are really born with wonderful body esteem. And they're inside their bodies looking out at the world. They trust their hunger. We trust that they know when they're hungry and when they've had enough. And if we lived in an environment that fully supported the maintenance of that body esteem and that truly valued wholesome eating and and offered up great food at regular intervals and supported enough time and opportunities for enjoyable physical movement, and then we were able to accept the diverse sizes and shapes that would result from that, then we would not be nearly in the difficult straits we are in right now, either with uh, rising rates of obesity or with eating disorders and just, you know, run-of-the-mill body dissatisfaction and disordered eating and, and dieting that you're talking about. But the fact is, is that instead of that kind of environment, so many children, well, all children today, and most adults today grew up in the same environment, although I think it's gotten worse, that really bombards us from an increasingly early age with so many messages that really teach kids that how they look is more important than who they are on the inside, let alone health, because children, of course, are you know they're not they're not that interested in health they're not they're not thinking about the long term effects of diminished health so they're very much though taught at an early age that how they look is more important than who they are on the inside and how they feel about themselves and whether they take care of themselves and the other thing to just kind of capitalize on another point that you made earlier is that i think that most people do not realize that even though concerns with rising rates of obesity have some legitimacy, I mean, there, there, there are concerns to be had about this, but that the way that this concern is being presented to people and children are very, very much exposed to those messages about prevention of obesity and campaigns to wipe out obesity and fear of obesity. And what so many people don't realize is that the way those campaigns are presented really is talking about size prevention. Obesity is a size. And so if we're talking about preventing it, we're talking about preventing a size. And if we're talking about preventing a size, then we are really reinforcing the idea that there is a right size and a wrong size to be. So believing that there is a right size and a wrong size to be is a very anxiety-provoking belief. And children who become anxious about their weight, believing that they might not be the right size, one of the things that happens is that they begin to view their bodies from the outside in. 
and judge themselves in comparison to some kind of external standard that may or may not be right for them in the first place. And in the process of doing that, in the process of being outside their bodies, looking in, judging themselves, they really disconnect from their own innate ability to really listen to their bodies, to know when they are hungry and when they are full and that they have a need to move and a desire and a craving to move. And in fact, they disconnect from their very best ally for lifelong health and wellness, if you will. And so the problem, of course, with the campaigns to prevent obesity today is that they're actually adding fuel to the fire in terms of children becoming very anxious about weight at a very early age. And then, of course, the normative response to having anxiety about weight in our culture is to engage in some kind of restrictive dieting pattern. That's what we do, and that's what parents are doing and teachers are doing, and it's just everywhere. And, of course, as you have said many times on your show, you know, dieting is not a benign activity. Dieting, not only is it self-sabotaging, of course, it's very seductive because people will lose weight in the short run, and so they think, oh, well, this can really work for me. But in the long run, the research is so clear that children who begin to engage in dieting behavior end up actually gaining weight over the long run in comparison to their peers who do not engage in dieting behavior. And that's not just because those children are heavier to begin with. That's with controlling for that. So it's kind of forgetting where I started this point, but the fact of the matter is is that we have a lot of pressures and a lot of external messages that are generating a great deal of worry about weight. And worry about weight, it turns out, little could we know years ago, but worry about weight actually has become part of the problem, um, causing people to engage in behaviors that end up resulting in the very outcome that they are most trying to avoid. And it's a flip coin, isn't it? Because on the one side, there's this worry about weight, and on the other side is this constant barrage of messages to eat more, especially eating more of the kinds of foods that will likely contribute to an unhealthy weight and certainly uh, certainly ill health. I just want to stop at this point and remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, that we are speaking with Kathy Cater. She is a licensed clinical social worker and a psychotherapist. She is the author of a terrific book of lessons, really, about healthy eating and healthy bodies. It's called Healthy Bodies, Teaching Kids What They Need to Know. And this is the third edition, and Kathy is based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Kathy, one of the things that you mention early on in your book is that It's extremely difficult to reverse body dissatisfaction once it is established. I don't know why that is. Because we are embodied. (laughs) If you become dissatisfied with a tree in your yard, yes, that's a living thing, but it's not you. You can reshape that tree or cut it down or do away with it. It, You know, it's not who you are, but, you know, our bodies... Are, are, who, are who we are. It's so bound up with our sense of identity that when we develop negative body image at an early age, oh boy, changing that, changing our image of ourselves is very, very difficult. So um, if, that ne- if that image is negative, and then add to that the fact that it's reinforced 
so much by the culture of the environment that we live in. Uh, I work with people in my clinical practice who are struggling, of course, and sometimes to the point of near death with negative body image um, and, the, and the negative eating behaviors that go with that. And, you know, if, if, we, if we only had to help them to reverse their negative body image, that would be hard enough. But every day they go out into a world that is encouraging them to compare themselves against standards that are frankly not realistic for most of us and to feel that they should, you know, that if they come up short in any minute way, that um, that that's not good enough, that only the only thing that's good enough is perfection. So, you know, it's just such an intrinsic part of who we are. Mm-hmm. So I often say that to be a woman in America is to have at least questioned our bodies at least once. Oh, yeah. I don't know... I don't know how many women I've ever met who, I mean, not that we talk about this all the time, but I don't know how many women I've met who who really feel good about every aspect of their body. You know, if you'd ask, well, if you could change one thing, nobody really has a problem coming up with one thing to change. Yeah. And I, I wonder when you're working with people, and especially children and adolescents who've mm-hmm. been conditioned to want to change their bodies, how do we promote a healthy body image? How can we reinstate, understanding that it's going to be hard work, but how can we help reinstate satisfaction with who we are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, something you said earlier, maybe I could just, um, will lead into this, and that is that, you know, we don't have to really like every last thing about about ourselves <laughs> or, or other people, um, and yet we love them and we love ourselves. So, you know, sometimes people think that having a positive body image means that we have to be able to look in a mirror and say, you know, wow, I like everything that I see. We're perfectly capable of, you know, having preferences and wishing this or that were different, wishing our thighs were thinner or wishing, you know, our nose was different or whatever without having to... Um, make judgments about it. I mean, having a preference is very different than saying, if it's not the way I want it to be, it's ugly or it's awful. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the difference, is when we talk about body acceptance, we're really talking about coming to terms with, and this goes back to my entire premise for the Healthy Bodies curriculum, teaching children at an early age what it is that they can realistically expect to control about the bodies that they were born with and that we can have some influence through taking care of those bodies or not taking care of those bodies. That will have some influence over our size and shape and appearance and overall presentation, but that there are things about who we are that are innate. They are inborn and that we really need to understand it. So so two of the lessons in the Healthy Body Image curriculum actually teach children about the biological basis for size and shape and weight so that children who have those lessons actually see that their bodies came from somewhere, that they have a genetic inheritance, and they learn about this. And believe it or not, fourth graders are perfectly capable of learning elementary genetic inheritance facts. And so they learn that their bodies came from somewhere. And so just like the color of their eyes or their skin, 
the sizes and shapes of their bodies, their height, but also the the roundness or the curviness or the leanness or uh, of their of their of their bodies is strongly influenced by genetic factors. And so, given what we can't control, given what the givens are, you know, then we can turn our attention to putting much more of our energy into, well, what can I do to take care of this body? I can love it, and I can feed it well, and I can exercise it, and I can, you know, develop those things about myself that are mine to develop. So body acceptance has a, has a lot to do with coming to terms with that. And for those people who are who have already developed negative body image, there's always inevitably, if they're going to really be able to come to terms with acceptance of their bodies, there's always inevitably a little grieving process or even a big grieving process that has to go along when they realize that in order to be happy, in order to have peace of mind, in order to live well in the bodies that they were born with, they have to give up some ideas that they, you know, are not going to be the thin ideal, if that's true for them, or that they're, whatever it is that they're feeling is is not okay about them. And, And letting go of that and grieving is what frees them to then move on and say, well, so teach me how to feed myself well and teach me how to take care of my body in a way that will help it to be the very best that it can be. So instead of a thin ideal, we have a healthy ideal. Mm-hmm. I jumped, of course, to your lesson number eight on how to eat. And I like the idea of focusing on eating to be well. It's certainly one that I would hope most parents would teach their children but, of course, there are many negative messages that children start receiving. It's funny you brought up your, your daughter when she was in fourth grade. I remember the first time my daughter heard the word diet was in uh, preschool when her teacher said, when her teacher announced to this little group of children sitting around the table that she wasn't going to eat something because she was on a diet. Oh, my gosh. And I'm glad I heard it because I was yeah. able to tell my daughter, well, you don't ever want to do that because, yeah. you know, that's that's not a good idea. Yeah. But I love one of your comments about what kids should know about what to eat, and it's about how to recognize nutritious foods. And you say, can you see where this food came from in nature? What a great way to look at food. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I love the I love teaching mindfulness and mindful eating to children. They're so able to do it <laughs> in many ways much more easily than adults <laughs> because, you know, because they they are able to just envision that and and be present to the natural world around them. So so when we can see where our food comes from, then we can, you know, we just have a whole different kind of connection to it rather than if we only think of food as something that we eat either to entertain ourselves, so therefore taste is really the only important thing when it comes to that, or the alternative, of course, if children become fearful about getting fat, the other way to relate to food is to be fearful of it and to uh, think that food is going to make us fat. And in the process of that, as I mentioned earlier, 
none of that has to do with being connected to our bodies from the inside out and really realizing that our bodies are part of nature. And so the food that we eat comes from nature. Hopefully we can see where it comes from in nature. And that the more you can see, the closer food is to the natural world, the more you can be confident that it's full of good, nutritious energy. And sometimes we don't have access to that, though. Yeah, that is, of course, a problem. And, you know, that's that's kind of a, a, another whole topic, I think, is, you know, the, the, the cost of good, wholesome food and the availability of it. And, and, of course, that is one of the reasons why the food environment that we live in today, you, you brought it up earlier and then we never really talked about it, but that food environment um, has become so powerful because people, of course, are going to eat what's available to eat. And often what's available at a price that they can afford is a lot of food that has a lot of energy. It often has a lot of really good taste, but unfortunately it's lacking in you know, what our body really needs in order to provide the nourishment that we need. So the food environment that we live in and the cost of food, you know, you can feed a large family on a very small amount if you're, you know, basically choosing foods that that are kind of lower quality foods. So mm-hmm. um yeah, that's a that's an issue. I don't know if you were referring exactly to the cost of food but Well I see it as a justice issue. Because just as every child has the right to feel good about themselves, and I, I look at I look at it through those social justice lenses, yeah. I also think that every child and every family has the right to access to good food and to yeah. truly eat well. I see that as a, a human right, and unfortunately, we seem to be moving away from having access to those kinds of choices but that's yeah. that's another show for another day i think it is yeah <laughs> well we but just it's have, a very important point it is and it's one of, it's one to ponder we just have a minute left and i want to leave you with uh, an opportunity to give our listeners something to think about and a charge yeah well i think that the main message of what i'm trying to do is to help people to think in terms of promoting health instead of size because there's nothing to be lost in doing that. I mean, there's no downside to it. Earlier you mentioned the do-no-harm approach. When we promote health instead of size, we're really promoting taking, you know, taking good care of our bodies, and there's no downside to that. When we promote size, along with that comes so many things that that got mentioned in in this short time that we've had talking together that are not helpful and in fact end up causing more problems. So, so the takeaway message that I would have uh, would be that this is whether or not your primary concern is with you know eating disorders or body image disorders or rising rates of obesity. It doesn't matter. It's the same for all. That uh, what what really makes the most sense is for us to teach all children, skinny children, average children, fat children, to love their bodies and to know how to really take care of themselves. Well, Kathy, I want to thank you for your book. It certainly does all that and more. And the website for our listeners is www.bodyimagehealth.com. 
www.ncsf.org. We've been speaking with Kathy Cater. She is a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist based in St. Paul, Minnesota. I want to thank Kathy for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Kathy, for your work and your words of wisdom and your book. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Thank you.